Hello, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. Vaccinated or unvaccinated? Surprisingly, Ephesians 2, 13-17 speaks to this issue, believe it or not. Sort of. Uh, in today's study, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 13-17. But before we do that, we're actually going to begin with a question from a listener about COVID vaccinations. And uh, then when we turn to our study of Ephesians, we are going to discover that Jesus actually revealed what to do with people who have different views than we do on such issues and other related issues, whether they are religious issues, political issues, social issues, cultural issues, or even scientific vaccination status issues. So that's where we're headed today. It's going to be quite the study, so make sure you stick around. We're going to begin, though, with this question from our reader about vaccination. You've got some mail. So here's the question. Uh, from a from a, a listener, my pastor says that wearing a mask and getting a vaccine is a way to follow the command of Jesus to love my neighbor. I have some serious misgivings about the vaccine, but I want to follow Jesus. What should I do? All right, so I have heard the same argument from uh, various pastors and Christian leaders. I've read some articles. And uh, I, I, find, I find their mm, arguments unconvincing for several reasons. And let me just sort of uh, cover some of those for you as I try to answer this question. Let's begin with the masks first, since those have been around longer, and sort of prepare the way for what I want to say about vaccines. First of all, I am convinced that masks are mostly, primarily, maybe even nothing more than a way for the government to teach all of us to be compliant uh, why do I say this? Well, it's a scientific fact, and uh, what I say next, if you disagree, do some research and thinking on your own rather than just listening to the news on this, But it's a, and maybe go talk to some doctors and nurses as well, uh, based on what I say, because I have, and, and I, I, all of this can get, be backed up by their practices as well. But it's a scientific fact that max, masks do absolutely nothing to spread the COVID-19 virus. Uh, in fact, it appears, based on recent studies and research, that they actually might help spread the virus more. And in, indeed, if you look at some of the early statements by Dr. Fauci himself, uh, he said in various interviews and emails even uh, that the typical drugstore mask does absolutely nothing to stop the virus from getting out into the air. Um, it's, uh, and the, that drugstore mask, it's that little blue one that most people wear. Uh, those cloth masks that people wear, you know, the little bandanas and other things they wear, those are even worse than those blue surgical masks. So, so um, you know, the, the, all, all together, though, they do nothing. Even those uh, N95 masks, you know, that almost nobody wears, you know, the N95 masks, a lot of paint sprayers and people use those. Even those uh, studies show that the COVID-19 virus is so tiny so minuscule, so microscopic, that even those, those, those really good, high-quality N95 masks, um, they, uh, they're, they're, they, they stop the COVID virus about as well as a chain-link fence would stop a mosquito. Okay, so, so these masks in general do absolutely nothing to stop the spread or the COVID, COVID virus from getting through 
the fabric or, or the filters on those masks, okay? But even worse than that, uh, it, it seems that the masks do actually cause sickness and the spread of viruses, in, including uh, COVID, to, to, to spread to other people even more. And the reason for this is because... Um, People think the masks work because they see doctors use them, right? They, they see them on, on the news, they see them on TV shows and so on. They go into surgery and the doctors and nurses are all wearing these, these blue masks. And so they, well, if, if they wear them, they must work. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a logical fallacy. It, it's scientifically untrue. Yes, the, the doctors and nurses do use the surgical masks, but guess what? They have been specially trained on how to properly use them. And... Pretty much 99.99% of the general public is not using these masks properly. How should these masks be used for them to work the way the doctors and nurses use them in surgery and in the hospitals? Well, first of all, they only wear them in sterile areas where there is also a higher concentration of oxygen to help cut down on the spread of viruses and bacteria. You and I, and we're walking around, it's not a sterile area. And of course, there's not a higher concentration of oxygen. Uh, secondly, uh, guess what? They only don these masks, put them on, after they are wearing sterile surgical gloves. Do any of you have sterile surgical gloves that you put on a brand new pair before you put on your mask? Obviously not. You're putting your mask on with hands that have touched everything all around you and have been contaminated by all these surfaces. So anything that is on your hands now all of a sudden contaminates the mask. Third, doctors and nurses never touch their mask after it is on. <laughs> uh, have you ever tried to do that? No, generally when you put the mask on, you're touching it and adjusting it and so on. Everybody does that, but doctors and nurses don't. Why? Because they don't want to put contamination on the mask. Fourth, uh, doctors and nurses never, ever reuse a mask. Okay. <laughs> um, once it's done, they throw it away. And in fact, they will often replace the mask during surgery every two to six hours. Uh, once the mask begins to have a little bit of moisture built up in it on the fabric, they will replace it. Why? Because that moisture becomes a breeding ground for bacteria and a storing ground for viruses and so on. And at that point, it becomes absolutely worthless. Again, most of us don't do that. We stuff these masks in our pocket. We place them on the counter. We reuse them over and over and over. We wear them for, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Some people, those who, who, who have jobs and do it that way. And um, they become full of bacteria and germs and, and viruses and all sorts of things. Fifth, doctors and nurses know that the mask does absolutely nothing to stop viruses from getting into the air that they might breathe out. Uh, believe it or not, surgical masks have one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to stop droplets of spittle from leaving their mouth and getting into the open body of the surgical patient. Okay, it's, it's basically to stop droplets of spit uh, as if they might sneeze on accident or just through their regular breathing from getting into the open cavity of the person that they're working on on the surgical table. That's it. Uh, viruses still go through those masks. Doctors know this. Bacteria still goes through those masks. Doctors know this and, and get into the air. And so what keeps the patient from getting sick from the bacteria and viruses and so on that the doctors and nurses and medical staff might be breathing out? Well, that's all of the, uh, the drugs and the antivirus medicine and the antibacterial medicines and so on that they pump into the surgery, surgical patient afterwards. Uh, that, that's what all that is for. Okay, sixth, because of all these things, if the doctor or nurse has any sort of symptoms whatsoever of any kind, 
they will refuse. They will bow out of the surgery and someone else will perform it. They won't operate on a patient. Why? Because they know that the mask does absolutely nothing to stop the spread of germs and viruses. Okay, so that's just a few sort of six items there of the, the way doctors and nurses use these masks that we don't. The average person doesn't wearing that mask. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite is true. Again, as I said, we take these masks, we reuse them, we toss them on counters and tables, and we, we uh, stuff them in our pockets that, you know, clothes maybe that are, aren't washed, and, and we fiddle and readjust our mask dozens, hundreds of times every day. You wear the mask over and over and over again, and what happens? The masks become absolutely filled with germs and bacteria, which guess what? causes even more harm and damage to the people who are wearing them and to the people who are around those who are wearing them. I went to a Subway Sandwiches this last week. The lady behind the counter making my sandwich, okay, I ordered this sandwich. And so she pulls out the bread and, and I, she's asking me what to put on this sandwich. I kid you not, in the two to three minutes that she was making my sandwich, she fiddled and touched her mask on average every five to 10 seconds. Okay, between every ingredient, she's adjusting her mask with her hands that she then takes down and makes my sandwich with. I was sitting there thinking I still ate the sandwich because I don't care. I think I have a good immune system. But I've, I sort of figured with how much she touched her mask, she should have just probably spit in my sandwich. It was essentially about the same thing. Okay, so uh, but that's normal behavior for mask wearers, isn't it? I just went to our local grocery store and I watched everybody walking around wearing masks and they're touching their mask and then they're touching the box of macaroni and they're touching their mask and then they touch the apples in the fruit aisle and they touch their mask and they touch their, their cart that they're pushing around the store, right? Every time they touch their mask, they're taking some virus or bacteria off of that cloth and spreading it around. It would be a whole lot better if they weren't wearing the mask and whatever they're breathing out just goes out into the air rather than on onto the fruit and the boxes in the cart. Even the checker behind the aisle, they got that nice plexiglass plate up there, right, to stop the spread of the virus. Well, guess what? They're behind there in the checkout aisle, fiddling with their mask, touching their mask, and touching every single item that goes along that conveyor belt, which they then put in, into your bag so you can take home. That plexiglass thing is not doing anything because they're fiddling with their mask and touching everything that you're buying and bringing home, thereby spreading any germs or bacteria or viruses that might be on that mask, okay? And even when the people wear the masks, uh, by the way, I am going to get to answer this question, <laughs> just have to give you some back, background here. Um, even when the people wear the masks, okay, all day long to protect themselves and protect others from the virus. You're sucking in that bacteria, those germs, that viruses. They breed and grow on that mask all day long. It's unhealthy for people to wear. They're not getting enough oxygen, which then inhibits their, their body's ability to fight off any germs or bacteria or viruses that they might get. Okay, so um, the mask is unhealthy for them. And that's partly why you just look at the places where they are requiring people to wear masks and the places where they do not have a mask mandate, such as Florida and Texas and other places. Uh, the, the places where people have the most strict mask requirements, those are the places where COVID is out of control and most more and more people are getting sick. Okay, so the, the masks do not stop the spread of the virus. They actually spread it more. So getting to the first part of this question, would Jesus wear a mask? Would he tell people to wear a mask? I believe not. I, I don't think so. 
Um, he wouldn't put a guilt trip on people for not wearing a mask. He would say, wear a mask if you want to, uh, but, but if you don't want to wear a mask, don't. Or maybe because he would know that the masks are unhealthy, maybe he would even encourage people to not wear masks at all. That's sort of my belief on that. Uh, Jesus would know that the reason the government is trying to force everyone to wear a mask, think about this, uh, the reason is because they want us afraid and they want us compliant. Okay, the government wants us to submit so that they can control us. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Uh, and, and, and this is nothing new. This is what governments do. They seek to control the people uh, under their, their, their rule. Uh, in Jesus' day, the, the Roman government tried to do this. They tried to get the people to be compliant uh, by forcing them to swear fealty to Rome, to declare that Caesar is Lord. Uh, if you swear fealty to Caesar, then Caesar will protect you. The Roman military will protect you. We will provide for you. Very similar to what the government is saying today. If only you agree to wear the mask. And now let's get the vaccine. We'll come around to that. Okay? Uh, the Jesus and the apostles disagreed with this Caesar is Lord approach. In fact, that's why the rallying cry, the central statement of the early church was Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Okay, so uh, today I believe that masks are nothing more than a sign of submission to the government. They are the equivalent to bowing down to Caesar, swearing fealty to Rome. Okay, so uh, to answer the first part of the question, would Jesus wear a mask? Uh, no, I don't think so, because Jesus alone is Lord and Caesar is not, or Biden is not. <laughs> Fauci is not Lord. Okay, Jesus is. All right, so the vaccine then, let's talk about the vaccine. Uh, the vaccine mandate, my approach to the vaccine is, is nearly identical, a little bit different, but nearly identical. The masks were the first step in preparing society and culture to be compliant, to submit. Okay. And the vaccine is now the second step. I, I think that there will be a third step if the government is successful in getting the majority of people to comply. Uh, remember, in fact, it's ironic, really, because remember early on um, when the vaccines were first coming out, masks came out and then vaccines were, were being developed under, under President Trump. Uh, remember when Trump was developing these vaccines, all of the Democrats, including Biden, including Fauci, including Pelosi, okay, all of these Democratic leaders said, uh, this was back when Trump was president, that if Trump forces people to take the vaccine, if Trump issues a vaccine mandate, it would be unconstitutional. It would be wrong. Uh, you know, the, the government can't do that. And you know for a fact that if Trump was in office now, if Trump was in the White House, if Trump was president right now, and if he issued a vaccine mandate, you know for a fact <laughs> that every Democrat in the country would be resisting and would be, there would be riots. We would have cities burning to the ground right now because of the Trump vaccine mandate. Um, but since the mandate is now coming from Biden, right, everybody's lining up to get the vaccine as quick as they can. They're all complying, sort of hypocritical, uh, I, I believe. Um, but what about this claim that Jesus wants us to take the vaccine, Okay. Uh, the, the pastors and, and Christian leaders are, are also preaching sermons, writing articles. The way to love your neighbor is to get the vaccine, right? We don't want anyone to get sick, and we want to get back to normal. So if you love your neighbor, get the vaccine. 
Uh, is that proper way to approach this? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. And for numerous reasons, I disagree with this position. The way these Christian leaders and pastors promote the vaccine is, is also somewhat ironic. All right. Uh, they, they first claim that Jesus wants us to take the vaccine. This is the loving thing to do. If Jesus were here, he would get the jab. Right. And then they turn around and issue a challenge to anyone who doesn't want to take the vaccine. If you don't want to get the vaccine, I challenge you. Provide evidence. Give me a Bible verse. Proof from Scripture that the vaccine is immoral or wrong. You can't provide such a verse, and so therefore you should go get it. Well, now hold on a minute here. <laughs> I mean, I read an article just today. I was doing a little research for this, and I'm not going to link to the article because I don't want to promote it, but I, I read an article just today from a prominent Christian leader who's basically said, Jesus wants you to get vaccinated, and if you disagree, find one verse in the Bible that says you shouldn't. Okay, he went on to claim to say that anyone who claims religious exemption from vaccination is adding to the word of God, right? And uh, because the Bible never says that vaccines are wrong. Okay, now, <laughs> I challenge that pastor, who will never hear this podcast, but uh, if your pastor is saying this, then go challenge your pastor. Uh, if your pastor says, Jesus wants you to get the vaccine um, and find a Bible verse that says you shouldn't, Challenge that pastor to find a Bible verse where Jesus says to get the vaccine, right? It, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Vaccines didn't exist back then. So, of course, we can't find a Bible verse that says you shouldn't get the vaccine. But they also can't find a Bible verse where Jesus says to get the vaccine, okay? The Bible doesn't talk about vaccines. And so you can't argue this vaccination thing from the Bible in that way. Okay, so the way it's often argued is, well, Jesus tells us to love our neighbors and uh, getting the vaccine is a way to love your neighbors. Therefore, you should get the vaccine. That's the way this is often argued. And that finally gets us around to this question that was originally sent in. All right. So first of all, how do we answer this? First of all, let's be clear about what Jesus actually said. He didn't say, love your neighbor. Okay. Uh, that's a half quote, and half quotes of Bible verses are very dangerous. Satan did that when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He quoted scripture, sure, but he gave half quotes, leaving out the rest. What is it that Jesus actually said? And it actually is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. But what is it that Jesus said? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the full statement. Again, part of a longer statement about this being the second commandment and so on. But again, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so, so the, in other words, the way that we are supposed to love our neighbor is the way in which we love ourselves. The way we can learn to love our neighbor is by thinking, well, what is it that I would want done? Or what is it that I, how do I treat myself? Uh, that's the way I should treat other people. Okay, so the standard of how we're supposed to love others is by how we love ourselves. We learn to love others by looking at how we love ourselves. Okay, and guess what? The people who refuse to take the vaccine, who don't want to take the vaccine, they are convinced that the vaccine is bad for them. Okay, so for a variety of moral uh, religious issues, ethical reasons, political reasons even, scientific, yes, there's scientific evidence to back up their position, spiritual reasons, personal reasons, there's a wide variety of reasons and issues, but they personally believe that it would be harmful 
to them personally to take the vaccine. Okay, so, so to put it another way, uh, one of the ways they love themselves is by not taking the vaccine. That's how they are loving themselves. And so if Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, which he does, and the Christians who refuse to take the vaccine are doing so as a form of self-love, then that means that for them, taking the vaccine would not be a way to love others. It would actually be a way to harm others. So it can be argued that refusing the vaccine is an act of love for other people. Refusing the vaccine is a way to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know if you took the vaccine and you believe what Fauci says and CNN says and Biden says and so on, then that, that sounds ridiculous. Okay, uh, but it's true. And uh, that's, that's how people think. They're not trying to harm other people. They're actually trying to help other people by not taking the vaccine. And uh, I know that's true because I'm one of those people. Just lay my cards out on the table here. I have refused the vaccine for a wide variety of moral, ethical, scientific, religious, political, and spiritual reasons, which I'm not going to get into because my answer to this question is already long enough. But I personally believe that getting the vaccine would be an act of hatred against my own body. And my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so I do not want to treat my body that way. And as a result of that, I also believe that receiving the vaccine would also be an act of hatred against worldwide humanity. Okay? So for me, refusing the vaccine is one of the ways I seek to follow the command of Jesus to love my neighbor as myself. And I know there may be a cost to this, by the way. Uh, I am in one of those positions, those jobs, where they have mandated the vaccine. Um, and I have filed a religious exemption request, uh, but so far it has not been approved. And uh, it may be that I will lose my job because of my conviction about what Jesus wants me to do. And if, if that were to happen, I, I don't know what will happen to myself or my family or how we will support ourselves, where we will live. I, I don't know any of those. Those are questions. But, but it's a step that I must take if I'm going to stay true to my beliefs and my convictions about this vaccine and, and how not taking it is a way to love myself and love my neighbor. Okay, but this job thing, by the way, uh, raises a, a, the, just a, a secondary issue here. Um, about how these governments and state and local and federal governments and uh, even corporations and so on are firing people from their jobs for not getting vaccinated. We've seen all over the country nurses and firemen and policemen and doctors losing their jobs, being forced to leave their jobs. Last year they were heroes. This year they're getting fired um, because they didn't get vaccinated. Now let me ask you, all of you who say getting the vaccine is a way to love your neighbor— is it loving to fire someone because they're following their personal convictions? Is it loving to stop people from being able to provide for themselves and their family? If, if the pro-vaccine Christians and Christian leaders are so concerned with loving their neighbors, they should be the first ones to stand up against 
terminating the employment of people who don't get vaccinated. You believe they should get vaccinated? Fine. Make your arguments from science and reason and logic. Go ahead. Let's have that debate. But I hope you also stand up for the rights and freedoms of people to keep their job because they are following their personal convictions and beliefs. Uh, but so far, I haven't heard any such Christian leader argue for that. I have not yet heard a single pro-vaccine Christian leader stand up against these moves by the government and various corporations to terminate the employment of people who don't want to get vaccinated. And I find that very unloving. Look, I can respect people, the views of people who want to get vaccinated. I'm not saying don't get vaccinated. If you want to get vaccinated, you go right ahead. Um, if you feel that that's the loving thing to do for yourself and for your family and for humanity worldwide, go ahead. But I also encourage you to respect the opinion of those of us who believe that is a harmful thing to do to our bodies, to our families, to our communities, and to worldwide humanity. And allow us to stand up for our right to have our beliefs and our convictions and uh, to keep our jobs, because that's the loving thing to do. Anyway, uh, it's a long answer to sort of a very short question, but, but by way of summary, here's my position, okay? If you believe getting the vaccine is the right thing to do for yourself, go ahead and get vaccinated, okay? At the same time, don't put guilt trips on people who don't want to get vaccinated. We're following our God-given conscience, okay, for what we believe is the right thing to do. Don't force us to eat meat sacrificed to idols, as Paul would say, okay? Similarly, like if you believe that it is immoral or unhealthy to get vaccinated, as I do, okay, let's not condemn people or put guilt trips on people who want to get vaccinated. They have their reasons for wanting that vaccine, and they're not going to go to hell or lose their eternal life or get rejected by God or something because, because they were vaccinated. And it's wrong to put that sort of guilt trip on people as well. Uh, we can stay true to what God has called us to do, and they can stay true to what God has called them to do. Okay, to our own master, we stand or fall. And so in either case, though, both sides of this issue need to stand up for the rights of our brothers and sisters to make the choice that our research, that our conscience, that our prayerful consideration of all sides of the issue has led us to make. And we need to stand up for our rights of all people to keep their jobs, to, to live and function in society with everyone else, to be able to shop at the stores and, and, and sell things like everybody else, regardless of our vaccination status, okay? We're, we really are. We've been hearing this for two years now. We're all in this together. Are we really still? I believe so. We truly are all in this together. And the most important thing through all of this is that we all, continue to protect the rights and freedoms and humanity of all people. Sometimes the unvaccinated, uh, I hear, sometimes I hear the vaccinated talk about the unvaccinated as if they're monsters and Neanderthals, okay? That, that's not helpful language. So regardless of what position you take on vaccines and masks, okay, let's not let the government divide us as they are seeking to do, because that's how they win and all of us lose. Okay. Now, all of this, believe it or not, fits right in with what we are studying today in Ephesians 2, 13-17.
You might say, Jeremy, that's impossible. You just said that the Bible says nothing about vaccines, and that's true. I agree. I stand by that statement. But guess what? Ephesians 2, 13-17 is talking about a different issue that Paul and the early church faced in that time, in those days, in that century, in that part of the world, what uh, was causing great division and strife among the Christians. And Paul wrote all of Ephesians chapter 2, the whole chapter, uh, as a way to deal with this division and strife so that they might live in peace and unity with one another. And that's what's going on today, okay? Vaccine status is dividing the church. And if Paul were here today, he would write something to us very similar, very identical to what he wrote to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, we're looking at verses 13 to 17 today. Now, I know that's a, if you've been listening to my podcast for any length of time, I usually cover like one or two verses. This is many more verses than that. It's, it's, and I thought about trying to figure out how to divide it up into pieces, but I just can't. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because these, uh, let's see, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five verses here uh, form a chiasm uh, in, in Paul's writing here. If you don't know what a chiasm is, it's sort of a, a biblical way, not a biblical, it's a literary way of organizing material. Uh, it's a little bit like an outline, uh, but usually the main point is found in the center. And what happens is when a writer, an author writes in a chiasm, they start with a point and then they work their way into the central point, the main point, and then they work their way back out, repeating everything that they said uh, on the way to the main point, but in reverse order. So it'd be like, you know, they'd, they'd say uh, A, B, C, D, and D would be the main point. And then they would go C, B, A, working their way back out from the main point. And that way, everything points to that central point. And so verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2 are a chiasm. And that's why I couldn't just break it all up into pieces because it would ruin the flow and ruin the thought. And besides that, I would end up just having multiple podcasts and repeating the same thing over and over. So uh, I, I'm putting it all together. Let me just summarize briefly where we've, what we've seen in Ephesians 2 so far. It's all about the hostility and violence that exists between various people groups in the world. And Paul specifically is thinking and writing about the hostility and division that existed between Jews and Gentiles. But uh, as we've seen, and as we'll see again today, these points that Paul makes really can be applied to any sort of division and strife and enmity and hostility that exists anywhere in the world at any time. Okay, so in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he basically explained the problem. Then in verses 4 through 10, Paul wrote about what Jesus did about it. This is the solution, how Jesus... Uh, came and solved this problem. Now, in verses uh, 11 through 22, half of the, the last half of this chapter, Paul is talking about how we can apply what Jesus did to our current situation, to his current situation, which is, which is this strife between Jews and Gentiles. And, of course, we can apply it to various forms of strife we experience today as well. So that's the application section, verses 11 through 22. And that's part of what we're looking at today in verses 13 through 17, Okay. So, now, uh, again, Paul is primarily thinking about Jews and Gentiles here, but I just want you to think, what is the strife that exists between Jews and Gentiles? You might say, well, Jeremy, that's easy. It's a racial strife. There's the Jewish race and then everybody else. That's the way the Jewish people divided things up. The chosen race and everybody who's not chosen. Well, okay, that's true. It is a racial division. 
But guess what? It's also religious, the Jewish religion versus all the pagan religions. There's religious division, isn't there? Even today between, I don't know, Muslims and Christians or Muslims and Jews or um, even various forms of Christians, Catholics and Christians or whatever, even you know, Baptists and Assemblies of God have some various forms of strife, uh, Calvinists and Arminians and so on, okay? There's different forms of Muslims. It's, it's, okay, there's all sorts of religious strife. Obviously, there's all forms of racial strife. Uh, racism and all that that exists in various forms around the world and around our country and so on. But uh, beyond that, there's culture, um, various beliefs and behaviors and ideals that the various cultures had, and those always cause strife. If you've ever visited another part of the world, another country, you know that there's cultural differences, and if you're not careful, you can really offend and make somebody angry uh, because of, of the cultural differences. Um, there's political divisions. Guess what? Jews and Gentiles had different political views and beliefs about who should be ruler and, and who, how the, the country and the government should be run and so on. Okay. Um, political divisions. We think of the political divisions that exist today between conservatives and liberals, as exa- for example. Um, and so, so there's all these things and it's all wrapped up into this strife that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so you take all these uh, religious, political, cultural uh, divisions and strife and various forms that exist today, wrap them all together in one box, and that's, that's the strife that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so whatever strife or division we're facing today, again, Paul's points here apply to that form of strife today. Okay, so let's begin in verse 13. Uh, Paul basically looks at these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, and says, guess what? Jesus wants you to live at peace with each other. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All right. Uh, So what does it mean to be far off? Well, this is just a summary of what Paul had just talked about in verses 11 and 12. And we studied that last time. Remember, there were these six ways, these six descriptive terms Paul used to show how they were far off. They were without respect, without Christ, without citizenship, without covenants, without hope, without God. Okay, they were far off. And that is sort of a way to summarize this, this, the way the Gentiles felt and even the way the Jewish people thought about Gentiles. In fact, a rabbinic writer tells of an incident that explains how Jewish people often viewed Gentiles. He mentions that when Gentiles converted to Judaism, as they sometimes did, such as Cornelius in Acts 10, uh, it was being called uh, being brought near. Isn't that interesting? Uh, When a a Gentile converted to Judaism, Jews called them being brought near. And a certain Gentile woman came to Rabbi Eleazar, confessed that she was sinful, and told him that she wanted to become righteous. She wanted to be accepted into the Jewish faith because she had heard that Jews were near to God. And uh, the rabbi responded by saying, no, you cannot come near, and he shut the door in her face. Okay, so even though uh, they were brought near, it was very difficult, very hard, and often Jewish people wouldn't even allow them to because of this division and strife that existed. And that's the way it used to be. But now Paul says in verse, verse 13 that in Jesus Christ, Gentiles who were far off have been brought near. 
And Paul says that this bringing near was accomplished, not because they changed their behavior, not because they became good people, really likable, not because they converted to Judaism, not because they got the vaccine, not because they changed their political views. No, all of this was accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is what Paul talked about in verses 4 through 10. The, the sacrifice of Christ by which he gave up his life for others. Uh, it's the, by the blood of Christ that those who were far off have been brought near. And Paul doesn't really say what exactly he means by being brought near, but but basically we can assume it means the opposite of whatever it means to be means whatever it means to be far off. Okay, and he described what it means to be far off in verses eleven and twelve. So this is the opposite of that. So they do have Christ. They do have God. They are part of the covenant. Okay, just the opposite. They do have citizenship. They do have hope. Okay, they are to be respected. Uh, the opposite of all of that stuff that he described there. Okay, so uh, that's verse 13. And notice this emphasis on peace. But again, here in verse 14, the emphasis on peace again. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So he's our peace. And again, the only way we can have peace with God and peace with each other is through Jesus Christ. And... um, Paul's choice of terms here for the peace is interesting. Uh, in the Greek, it's a term for peacemaker. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, there, in the Greek, there is a term for peacemaker, but that's not the one Paul uses here. Uh, Jesus Christ did not come to bring peace and then retire to the sidelines. He is our peace. Okay, so he didn't come to just create peace, make peace. Jesus is the peace that 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 creates peace in us and with us and among us. Okay. He didn't just make it and leave. Uh, he is our peace. So as long as there's division and strife, we're not focusing on Jesus because Jesus is the peace. He makes the peace and, and, and keeps the peace between us. Um, and uh, he has made both one. This is this, uh, this, this idea that there were the two peoples, but now we are one in Jesus Christ, the church. Uh, sort of a, a third, the way Paul talks about this elsewhere in the Bible, in, in the New Testament, is this third people group. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. We're now one. And then this concept there at the end, he's broken down this middle wall of separation. The term here is a reference to the temple that existed at the time of Paul. There's no more temple now. It was destroyed at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But... Um, At the time, there was, in the temple, this outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. Okay? There were sort of these these three different courts. There was a Court of the Gentiles, a Court of Women, and then the inner court. Okay? So the Gentiles, they could only get into the temple as far as the Court of Gentiles. And even if they converted to Judaism, they couldn't go any further. Of course, Jewish women could go a little bit further, and only Jewish men could go all the way inside. Um, but, but Gentiles then, they could go no further because there was this dividing wall, this middle wall of separation keeping them out. And archaeologists have even discovered an inscription from the temple at the time of Paul that was put between the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles. And it said this, No foreigner may enter within this barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Okay? (laughs) That's a wall of separation, isn't it? You're a Gentile. I don't care if you convert to Judaism or not. If you come past this gate, guess what? You will be killed and you have only yourself to blame. 
Um, that is the dividing wall of hostility, of separation. So Paul uses this as a symbol, basically, for the racial hatred, the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And there, it was a wall between the two. I mean, remember, Paul, in fact, had firsthand experience with this. In Acts 21, uh, this actually was the reason for his arrest. Uh, he, he was falsely accused of taking Trophimus, a Gentile from the city of Ephesus, past the barrier, if you remember this. And uh, that, that's probably why Paul mentions this barrier in his letter to the Ephesians, because they know that one of their own, Trophimus, um, he didn't go past into the inner court, but that's what got Paul in trouble, because the Jews thought he did, and so they arrested him. Uh, and so that's why Paul's mentioning this here. Paul has firsthand experience with what happens when you transgress this law. Okay? But Paul says that Christ has torn this wall down. He has destroyed it. Um, remember when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in half from top to bottom, thereby showing that people could approach God without the priesthood, without the temple, without the sacrifices, and so on. Sort of the similar idea and, and uh, imagery here. Now there's this dividing wall, keeping Gentiles away from God, but in Jesus Christ, it has been destroyed. It has been torn down. It has been breached. And so now all can come to God, Jew and Gentile alike, on common ground, uh, on, on the, with the same standing. Why? Because Christ is our peace. Now, verse 15 tells us how Jesus Christ accomplished this. He says, Paul writes, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Okay, so uh, first this idea of enmity. Uh, he abolished in his flesh the enmity. This refers to his sacrifice, his death on the cross. And if you've read my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, then you know how Jesus did that through his flesh. Uh, through the enmity that exists between Jews and Gentiles. And where did this enmity come from? Where did this division and strife come from? Well, from the law and commandments contained in ordinances. Okay, this is referring to the Mosaic law. We've often been taught that, uh, you know, the law was good and righteous and, and it uh, helps people prepare their way to become Christians or believe in Jesus and so on, but that really is a misreading. Yes, the law was good, but it was never intended. The law, the law was never intended to be as a way for people to live with each other and live with God. Again, I, I cover this in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, but the law uh, was a very poor substitute for love. The, originally, God offered the Israelite people a relationship with him based on love, and they didn't want that. They rejected it, and so he gave them laws, and the laws didn't work, and so he gave them more laws, and those didn't work, and so he gave them more laws. Okay, the, Jesus, God was trying to show them laws are not going to work. And eventually, uh, they never really got it, because even those 613 commandments turned into over 6,000 rules and commands, and um, those have... have ballooned and even more as of today. Uh, so it's impossible for anyone to keep the Mosaic law and, and then the, the Jewish traditions and so on. Of course, we non-Jews have our own laws and rules that become impossible to keep, um, which is the, the laws of our, our country and so on. They are all contradict. And, and uh, anyway, it, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, 
It, it causes division and strife, doesn't it? Um, these laws, though, stating that the Jews were to have nothing to do with Gentiles, you know, not to not to associate with them, not get involved in any of their practice, and of course it caused strife. Why shouldn't we get in contact with the Jews or the Gentiles? Because they're evil, they're filthy, they're disgusting, they're pigs, they're animals. Okay, very similar terminology that any human group uses against any other human group as a way to dehumanize them, turn them into monsters so that we might kill them and sideline them and and get them fired from their jobs, and eventually kill them. Uh, it's the way the Nazis talked about the Jewish people in order to do the concentration camps. You have to dehumanize someone before you can kill them and destroy them. And um, it's happened over and over and over throughout the history of the world. Jesus did away with it, and it's all based on laws and commandments contained in ordinances. That's where it all starts. Okay, so Jesus did away with that. And uh, by the way, you might say, what about Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law? How does that fit in here? Well, the answer is found by carefully understanding what Paul says here in verse 14. Um, according to Ephesians 2, 14, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to abolish the enmity that existed because of the law. Okay. Yes, and, and Paul even writes elsewhere that the law is holy, righteous, and good, okay? But, and I agree with that, because it was given by God, okay? But it's the effects of the law, what the law did. Uh, the law, it doesn't work. And that was the reason God gave it, to show us that it didn't work, that it, this way of living does not work. It does not bring us to love does not lead to love. It leads to the exact opposite. It leads to hate and violence and murder and bloodshed. That's what the law does. And that's why God gave it, to show us that it doesn't work. And it creates only enmity. So that, that fits right in line with uh, Jesus didn't abolish the law, in, in really, but he did reveal what the law does. Um, it, it, it just leads to bloodshed and violence. Jesus abolished the enmity that is created by the law. Okay? You think of the law, those, those who are able to keep it, whether it's our current political laws and mandates or the religious laws found in the Bible, it always leads to self-righteousness, doesn't it? Those who follow them feel superior. They look down their noses at everybody who doesn't follow them, whether they're not able to or because they choose not to. And it causes people to think, I'm better than you because... I followed the law. I obeyed the mandate, right? Uh, and uh, it leads to enmity and strife and division. It causes those who follow the laws to judge, condemn, and accuse those who don't. And eventually, why don't you obey the law like me? It must be because you are inferior. And uh, the law essentially uh, causes the exact opposite of what God wanted. God wants us to love him and love each other. That's the first and uh, greatest commandment, again, Matthew 22, we talked about this earlier, and the second commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, this sums up all the law and the prophets. In fact, if you just love God and love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't need to even think about the law, know the law, follow the law, or understand the law, nothing, because the law will automatically be fulfilled and obeyed simply by loving God and loving others as yourself. And then there's no more enmity either, because love does away with enmity and division and strife. Okay, so uh, you see how all this works and how G Paul is showing us what Jesus revealed to us and how it does away with all this division and strife. Um, 
And, and so, so, so Jesus came, says Paul, to do away with this enmity that was created by the law, to bring together those who had been separated by the law. And uh, that's what Paul explains in Ephesians 2.15. Jesus abolished the enmity of the law to make one new man, the church, Jews and Gentiles together as one. Um, he, he made Jews and Gentiles into the body of Christ. And Paul's going to pick up on this, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 5 with the imagery of marriage. So we'll talk about that more when we get there. Okay? But, uh, and it leads to peace. And peace is the central idea of Paul's thought pattern here. Christ makes peace. Christ is our peace by abolishing the enmity, making two into one. Okay? And um, that's the central point of this, of this text. Paul is talking about peace at the beginning and the middle and the end, at this chiasm here. And verse 15 is the central point about peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 16 then begins to work our way back out, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Okay, you see very similar concepts and ideas that Paul has already talked about. Um, Just basically repeat of his earlier statements that he made the two into one, that he reconciled both into one body. Uh, It's the same idea, just phrased phrased a bit differently. Uh, But notice the minor difference here. Uh, how Paul elaborates on what he said before. The goal is not just to have these two bodies be reconciled to each other, but also to reconcile them to God, that he might reconcile them both to God, he writes. And the differences we have with each other cannot really be worked out if we just sit down and talk them over. We have to be reconciled, in order to be reconciled to each other, we have to be reconciled to God as well. And that's what Jesus did through the cross. Uh, In Ephesians 2.15, Christ did it in himself. Here Paul repeats himself, elaborates on it. It's not just in himself, but what he did on the cross. And uh, all of that, all of this Jesus accomplished on the cross. And and you say, well, again, how? How did Jesus show this? Well, look, (laughs) we falsely accuse Jesus, we condemn him to death, we torture him, and we kill him. Now, you're an average normal human being. What are you going to do? You're going to retaliate, aren't you? If you come back from the dead, you're coming back with an army. You're coming back with bloodshed and murder. You're, this is the, the theme of every single uh, movie that's out there. Revenge on those who did me wrong. Okay? Jesus didn't, though. What did he say from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then when Jesus returned, did he come back to, to, to injustice, right? To, to, to destroy and annihilate all those who wrongly accused him and killed him and hurt him? No. He came and forgave them as well and offered them eternal life. Jesus is showing us a different way. When we're wrongfully accused, or even rightfully accused, in the case of us humans, us sinful humans, when we are hurt and wronged and tortured, even killed, how should we respond in the same way Jesus did? With love and forgiveness and acceptance. That's the way to peace, the peace of Christ. And that's what Jesus revealed on the cross through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's what Paul says there in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Right? To everybody who killed Jesus and wanted to see Jesus dead, he preached peace. He brought peace. And you could even say peace is a theme of Jesus' life and ministry. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 57, 19, which says, Uh, that the Lord will say, peace, peace, to those far and near. You think of the first words of the angels when they appeared to the shepherds on the hills, proclaiming the birth of Jesus. 
Uh, Luke 2, 13 through 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then uh, when Jesus is speaking to his troubled disciples in the upper room in John 14, 27, what does he say? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Jesus Christ came preaching peace. Peace such as the world has never seen. It's peace. And Jesus is showing us. Paul is writing to us. You have division and strife in various ways, various people groups. Jesus shows you how to live at peace with them. Uh, He has brought peace to those who were far off and those who were near. Okay, so in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, we learned that our relationships are in shambles, that we're at each other's throats for a variety of issues. We can't get along. We're at animosity with each other, enmity, hatred, violence, bloodshed, murder. Passage here is the solution. And Paul has arranged it so that we can't miss it over and over and over. Beginning, middle, end. Peace, 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 peace. Jesus Christ has brought peace. Follow the way of Jesus on the cross and you will live at peace. We who live at enmity with each other, who judge each other by our own moral standards, our laws of conduct, okay? We, whether we think we're far off from God or near from God, we can, all of us, in Jesus Christ, through what he has done, by following his example, we can live at peace with one another. Because if we don't, guess what? We're only damaging ourselves. Uh, We are to love others because they are part of the same body as we are. We're one flesh, one body in Jesus Christ. So if we hate others, we're hating ourselves. That's why we should live at peace with each other. When members of the body of Christ fight against ourselves, we're really only hurting ourselves. We're gouging out our own eye. We're cutting off our own hands. We're shooting ourselves in our own foot. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. You can go read that. You ever seen the movie The Fight Club? Sort of a violent movie. I watched it years and years ago. Um, it's a story of two men who decide to become real men, right? And to show it, they, they start a fight club where they fight each other and other men join because they want to become real men and prove their manhood and, you know, the, 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 the fighter instinct in them. And so they fight each other. It's the fight club. Um, they're, uh, in, in, they first come up with this idea in a bar and so they decide to start right away, right there in the parking lot. They have a, a fist fight with each other and a crowd gathers and watches in utter amazement, not stepping in and stopping the fight. Okay. And then the movie progresses from there and so on. Um, it's interesting though, there's a twist and I'm going to ruin the movie here for you. If you haven't seen it, there's a twist at the end of the movie where you learn, you discover that the two men are actually a one man. He's a split personality. And uh, when they fight each other, the two, the two men that are one man, when they fight each other, it's really one man punching himself in the face, knocking himself to the ground, giving himself a black eye, gouging out his own eye, okay, scratching himself, and so on. That's why in the parking lot at the bar, nobody stepped in to stop the fight. Uh, they all just stood around watching in utter amazement because it was one man punching himself in the face and like, what is going on here, Okay. So uh, that's, that's the twist at the movie. Uh, and, but that's how, that's, that's how the church is functioning. Jesus has made the two into one. We are one person now, one body. 
But when we fight amongst ourselves, for whatever reason, we're like the fight club. Gouging out our own eyes, scratching our own face, punching ourselves in the head, knocking ourselves to the ground. As the body of Christ, we're supposed to be loving and unified. We're supposed to be living in the peace that Christ has provided, uh, that the whole world wants. The whole world wants peace. And we as the church are supposed to show them the way through forgiveness and love and understanding and grace and mercy. Instead, we spend most of our time beating each other up, like the two or the one person in the fight club. Okay, we have these racial differences, we have these political differences, class differences, theological differences, now even vaccination differences. Okay, and when we focus on these differences, then we're just going to, it's going to lead to enmity and strife and condemnation and violence, rather than to love and grace and mercy and peace, the way we're supposed to. I came across a fictional, humorous story a while back. Uh, It's sort of long, but let me read it to you. And um, I think it'll make the point I'm trying to say. Here's the story. I was walking across a bridge recently and spied a fellow who looked like he was going to commit suicide by jumping off. So I thought I would try to stall him until the authorities showed up. Don't jump! I yelled. Why not, he asked. Nobody loves me. God loves you, I said. You believe in God, don't you? Yes, I believe in God, he said. Good! Are you a Christian, Jewish, or Muslim? I said. Christian, he said. Me too! Protestant or Catholic? Neither, he said. What then, I asked. Baptist. Me too, I said. Independent Baptist or Southern Baptist? Independent Baptist, he said. Me too, I said. New evangelical moderate independent Baptist or conservative independent Baptist? Conservative independent Baptist, he said. Me too, I said. Calvinistic conservative independent Baptist or lose your salvation Arminian conservative independent Baptist? Calvinistic conservative independent Baptist, he said. Me too, I said. Dispensational premillennial Calvinistic conservative independent Baptist or historical premillennial Calvinistic conservative independent Baptist? Dispensational premillennial Calvinistic conservative independent Baptist, he said. Me too, I said. Against women in ministry, dispensational premillennial Calvinistic conservative independent Baptist or for women in ministry, dispensational premillennial Calvinistic conservative independent Baptist? Against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist, he said. Me too, I said. Unashamed, fundamentalist, against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist, or strict separation of church and state against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist. Unashamed fundamentalist against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist, he said. Me too, I said. Pro-Disney, boycott, pro-life, unashamed fundamentalist against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist, or anti-Disney, boycott, pro-choice, unashamed fundamentalist against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist. Pro-Disney boycott, pro-life, unashamed fundamentalist against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist, he said. Me too, I said. 
King James Version only? Pro-Disney, boycott, pro-life, unashamed, fundamentalist, against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist, or modern versions? Pro-Disney, boycott, pro-life, unashamed, fundamentalist, against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist. Modern versions. Pro-Disney, boycott, pro-life, unashamed, fundamentalist, against women in ministry, dispensational, premillennial, Calvinistic, conservative, independent Baptist, he said. Ah! You heretic! I said. And I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you stuck with me through all of that or even understood most of those terms, but it's an old joke. Uh... Basically, if you look long enough, you're going to find something, quote-unquote, major to disagree with on everybody. Today, I suppose, if we were writing that joke, uh, we could add vaccination status. Pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine? Oh, you heretic! Okay, whatever his answer. (laughs) Uh, But look, it's a humorous story, uh, but it's sadly true. In fact, I'll bet, not bet, I know for absolute certain certainty that there is not one other person, one other Christian on the entire planet, probably in the history of Christianity, that you agree with 100% on everything. Same for me. There's not one other person, one other Christian in the history of the world that I agree with 100% on everything. If we dig deep enough, have enough conversations, there will always be something that we disagree with uh, from each other, for, for each other. Okay, And if we let those disagreements separate us, we will be forever pushing each other off bridges, separating, dividing, splitting churches, arguing with each other, condemning each other to death, accusing each other of heresy. Okay, And that's exactly what Satan wants, right? To divide and conquer, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants. Jesus wants unity, and peace. Jesus wants us to live in peace with each other. And that's what Paul has just talked about in verses 13 through 17 of Ephesians chapter 2. And this doesn't come by forcing us all to do the same thing, act the same way, believe the same thing, dress the same, talk the same. Okay, we're not supposed to be clones. As Steve Taylor used to sing about, I want to be a clone. Okay, no, we're not supposed to be clones. We're supposed to, uh, to, to, to learn to love each other despite our differences, or maybe even because of our differences. Differences are what make the body of Christ beautiful. Okay, so how does peace occur? Peace occurs when uh, we look at Jesus, when we focus on Jesus, when we forget about what is between us, what divides us, and focus instead on who is above us, Jesus Christ. Peace occurs when we focus not on ourselves, but we turn our eyes on Jesus. Everything else fades into the background so that we can learn to live in peace with each other. Peace is what Jesus brought, and peace is what we can have in Jesus Christ. So, that's our lesson for today from Ephesians 2, 13-17, and I think you see sort of how it fits in with uh, this modern vaccine debate, and how it is dividing and separating Christianity. I hope you do not allow it to do that. Instead, let's come together in unity and love for one another, even for those who might have differences of opinion on this issue. Let us respect one another for their decisions, for their positions, and also fight for each other, for our rights to hold our beliefs, hold our views, 
and maintain our jobs and live in society, function in our country, whatever country you're in, uh, with these views that we have, okay? Because that's what we are supposed to do as the body of Christ, as we live for each other and protect each other as the body of Christ. We'll be looking at more of this and how we can live towards unity, live in unity, as Jesus has calls us to when we pick up next time with Ephesians 2, verse 18. Join me then. We'll see you. Bye.